2: Winston Churchill, I knew very well. I mean, as, insofar as a um, boy of 16 can know a very, very distinguished old man of 75, you know, whatever age difference was. Yes. Um, but I, we saw actually quite a lot of him.
3: That was John Julius Norwich reminiscing about his earlier life.
4: The West is no longer perhaps quite sure what it stands for. And uh, it seems to me that there is a story... Which can be told and should be told.
3: And that was Larry Seedentop discussing the history of Western liberalism. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. Plus we have digital editions for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, please head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. And I should add that we've also recently launched on Kobo. You'll find us under the e section on Kobo.com. A silent film star, renowned intellectual, host and celebrity and the wife of the Secretary of State for War, Lady Diana Cooper lived a fascinating life, encountering many of the leading figures of her age. She also wrote an extensive series of letters to her son, the historian John Julius Norwich, detailing her experiences. Following the publication of a set of these letters, covering the years 1939 to 1952, our Reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with John Julius to explore what they reveal about a largely vanished world.
2: Well, I had all these letters from my mother, which she had uh, been very, very careful and never stopped reminding me to keep my letters, keep my letters, keep my letters, you know. So, I, I mean, it, as a child in the war, it's not terribly easy to do that. And I have to say that one or two little piles went astray. OK, yes. But I think I probably got about 90%. Which this is only a tiny percentage. Wow! Because I mean, there's much, much more. Um, we had to weed through and choose and select. You know. So how many letters are we talking in total? Well, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I have no idea. A lot. Uh, but I mean, I think here there must be probably, three hundred. Wow! So is that, and uh, there are many, many, many more. Um, in the archive, we've actually put all the rest now in the archives of Churchill College. Oh, cool. Uh, Cambridge. Okay. Where they've awesome. got all my father's as well. So if anybody wants to go there and look them up, there, there they all are.
5: Oh, brilliant. Fantastic. And for people that might not know, um, could you talk through your mother and your father and
2: their roles before, I suppose, the war? Certainly. Uh, well, my mother, as she said, had always been a celebrity. In those days, there were no such things as sort of film stars and things. But uh, she was. The point about her, really, was that she was very, very beautiful. She was a knockout, and she had a character to match. So she got, always got a lot of publicity in the social columns and that sort of thing. Uh, she was generally thought to be uh, the youngest daughter of the Duke of Rutland. In fact, she wasn't. She was the daughter of a lovely, much more interesting figure called Harry Cust, who had a long affair with my grandmother. And, and whom it is said might be the grandfather of Mrs. Thatcher. Really? So maybe I'm Mrs. Thatcher's first cousin. Okay. I've never dared ask the family for a DNA, but it was that no. uh, uh, it could be. Hmm. Anyway, uh, she then um, she grew up. She was born in 1892, so she grew up really. I and mean, when the war broke out, 1814, she was what? 1914. I mean, she was what 22. And all the young men went off to war. And very, very nearly all the young men got killed. Uh, she fell in love with my father, whom her parents thought most unsuitable. His father had started life as a doctor in Norwich, and he had no money at all, and no birth or breeding or whatever, was called in those days. But she loved him. And uh, then, and, and it was shared by, really good luck, that um, he survived. He really only survived because in 1912 he had joined the Foreign Service. And uh, the foreign, that meant that um, he was what was called a reserve profession. They needed him in London to run the Foreign Service, as yeah. it were. And so uh, it was only in 1916 when Mr. Asquith was succeeded by Lloyd George, and by this time there were practically no young officers left, they were mm. all of them dead. Mm. My mother told me once that at the end of 1916, every man she had ever danced with was dead. I mean, oh, it's a thing incredible. We, we, can't have this, we can't begin to imagine what it must have been like. No, no everybody would be. Uh, and my father, uh, in 1916, at last, was allowed to join up because he was feeling pretty bad about it, all his friends going off and him just staying in a nice warm, you know, having all the <laughs> girls. But uh, uh, eventually he was allowed to go and he went. But he didn't get to the front until, I think, January 1918. Okay. So he only had 10 months of it, during which he won himself a DSO and I mean, he did yeah. extremely well. But, I mean, if he had been there for four years, I wouldn't be here talking to you now, I know. No, no doubt at all. He'd mm. been killed like everybody else. Anyway, there it was. He was by that time, despite the only one, my m- grandmother was still perfectly furious. I mean, she thought that the Prince of Wales was very nearly good enough for her beloved daughter. You know. Yes. But anyway, she had to bite on the bullet and accept this extremely um, unwelcome son-in-law, which he really was. and She was beastly to him, too. She was not a nice woman at all. Uh, anyway, there it was, and then my mother, very, uh, very soon after uh, their marriage, they married in 1919, in 1922, I think, she became, to her enormous surprise and the considerable disapproval of most of her parents' generation, a film star. Yes, yes. And she became a film She made two films, in, in, in both of which she starred, Silent, of course. The one was in colour, rather surprisingly. Very, I've seen it I mean, it's a very primitive sort of colour oh, okay. I mean, but it's in colour mm. alright and uh, one of them in which he played Queen Elizabeth it's called The Virgin Queen uh, has disappeared without trace uh, the other one called The, the Glorious Adventure is a marvellous bit of romantic kitsch set in the time of the fire of London okay. so they did actually rather well and um, that was a great success uh, and, uh, and what really made it successful was that it caught the imagination, or the eye, of the greatest international producer of the day, who was called Max Reinhardt. So how old were you at the period when these letters in this book I start? was nine. You were nine, OK. And uh, when they start, and I was about 20 when they finish. Mm. And, um, so it covers a whole, whole range of time. So it covers quite a long time, mm. including what was a very exciting time, particularly at time for my parents, which was the war. Yes. And I was evacuated... Uh, to America and Canada in June 1940 when being, what, 10 years old. And um, I was evacuated because my, mom, my father was a cabinet minister who had resigned from Neville Chamberlain's government at the time of the Munich Agreement because he desperately disapproved of doing a deal with it. He knew it was undoable de- with deals with, you know. And um, my mother had this idea. What you have to remember, which I think is very hard for all of us to realize today. In the summer of 1940, the question was not, is Hitler going to invade? It is, when is the invasion going to be? Right. I mean, is it next week or is it the week after? I wow. mean, we, it was actually like that. Yeah. You know? And my mother had this sort of nightmare that I would be seized by the invading Germans and held as a sort of hostage for my father's good behavior. My father was on the blacklist, hmm. he was number three on the blacklist. Wow, that's after incredible. Winston Churchill and Edmund Eden. And she would, had this sort of horror that I'd be held and... Yeah. Had my fingernails torn out or something. Uh, and anyway, so I was sent off to America. And she, of course, stayed. My father was uh, minister of information. So she, she and he stayed in London all through the Blitz. And she wrote to me every day mm. from the Blitz. And, and, and there's a lot of marvellous stuff, sort of Blitz it's work. It's amazing, the letters. They're amazing. I mean, they are extraordinary. I know. And... Um, so she wrote to me every night. And then uh, after the Blitz was over in 1941, I was still in America, um, my father was sent to do a report on the defences in the Far East, which, as we now know, were practically non existent. There's some incredible characters in the book as well, some really famous yes. people. Do you remember kind of meeting any of these famous people? Oh, I met all of them. Um, Winston Churchill I knew very well, I mean, as insofar as. A um, boy of sixteen can know a very, very distinguished old man of seventy-five. Mm. You know whatever age difference was. Yes. Um But I, we saw actually quite a lot of him. Uh, not so much during the war, but after the war um, in nineteen forty-seven, forty. Well, the end of no, forty-eight. Because what happened was, my father was—he was sent to Algiers in, in nineteen forty-four to be a person, to be the, uh, Churchill's personal representative to General de Gaulle. And the Free French were in Algeria. that was their base. But by this time, everybody knew that uh, we were winning the war, and it was only a question of months before Paris was liberated. And the deal was that when Paris was liberated, my father would go in as, as the first post-war ambassador. Which he did, he went in uh, Paris was liberated, I think on the ninth of August, and on about mid September, my parents arrived mm. and it was, it was that was pretty grim I mean I went there over for Christmas, and that was pretty grim too in the first, in the first thing because it was the coldest winter Paris had had for fifty years, and nobody had any fuel or heating um so the, this embassy life started, and when he uh, I was, well, he didn't retire it wasn't his drive when he, when he was uh, Switch from yeah. the embassy. I won't say fired, which is a, a cruel word. He wasn't fired, but what happened was, you see. I mean, he was never—he wasn't a, a member of the foreign service. He wasn't a diplomat. He was a conservative politician. Mm. And in '45, the Labour government got in, and we thought, well, that's it. I mean, we're going to be out on our ears yeah. as of next week. But fortunately, Ernie Bevin, who was a lovely ex-miner and, and, and the foreign secretary, who everybody loved, huge hulking man, he looked like Stonehenge. Uh, But he absolutely loved my mother, and he was coming over almost every week for the Foreign Minister's Conference, which was preparing the great peace conference for the following year. And um, my mother always gave him a wonderful time. And so uh, he kept them on until the end of
1: 1947,
2: uh, which happened to be the exact moment I joined the Navy to do my national service. And uh, after that, my father had a great friend in the shape of Sir Alexander Corda, who was the uh, uh, a film producer, Hungarian um, and the head of the British Film Producers Association. And he had this idea that, the, that uh, my father should go out to the Venice Film Festival every year and represent the British film industry. My father had never taken a photograph in his life. <laughs> He didn't know which end of a camera was which. But that didn't matter. I mean, the idea was to represent it and give mm-hmm. dinner parties and, you know, we would be nice to people and make a bit of a show. So uh, that's what happened for about four years running. And it fortunately happened at the beginning of September, which was my holidays. So I would go too. That's when I got first got to, fell in love with Venice. And um, during that time, uh, the Churchills were always, they used to go to the Lido for Two weeks every summer. Okay. And Winston adored the cinema, absolutely loved it, and uh, cried buckets at every film. Oh, wow. Always. Uh, there's a letter somewhere here where my mother says, towards the beginning of the war, they go and stay the weekend with the Churchills at this house they lived in in the war, Ditchley in Oxfordshire. And she said, We had films in the evening, two dramas and a comedy. Winston cried at all of them, including the comedy.
5: <laughs> oh, that's
2: amazing, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was a great crier, and uh, and and we used to go to the movies together, my parents and the two Churchills and me. So occasionally, I found myself actually sort of sitting next to him mm. and heard the perpetual sobs, oh. <laughs> and he kept you me up a running commentary. I remember um, there was one terribly sad film we saw about Irish, Irish tinkers, Irish gypsies wandering around, and from time to time you heard them, poor people, poor, poor people. And on one occasion I remember, poor horse.
5: <laughs> poor horse, that's poor amazing. Horse. <laughs>
2: and at the end, at the end, he said to, him, to himself, not to me, to anybody, but just like muttering to himself, ah, jealousy, jealousy, most barren of all vices. Amazing. If I remember him hearing him say that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, so I was very lucky. I mean, my my parents knew all these very distinguished people. And because I was around, I knew them too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's really nothing nice about the letters, is that there's
5: a real sense of your mother coming through as a personality and as a
2: person. Yes. Well, I mean, she did have a very strong character. And she was, as I think the letters show, she was the most terrific fun. Mm. She was marvellous fun to be with. She liked to make things hum. Yes, you know. yes. I mean, it's and a wonderful. Sort of she was a wonderful mum. Mm. Uh, because, I mean, she adored me for the very good reason that she'd had to wait six, uh, she'd had to wait ten years before I was born and and had been told that she could never have children. And then suddenly I popped out, everybody's great surprise. And um, so I was an only child and the last unexpected one. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, she had, you know, she gave me an enormous amount of her time. It was Mm -hmm. she who taught me to read. I could read by the time I was four, Uh, I could read when I was four, perhaps not by the time. Uh, uh, I used to clamber into her bed every morning and we'd have reading lessons and um, arithmetic lessons and geography lessons and every sort of lesson. And uh, and she used to take me out I and mean, she always had a, uh, this cream convertible car which was always open except when it was absolutely pelting with rain. She always kept it open. And we used to go in the afternoon she would take me out and we used to do really exciting things like chasing fire engines to see a really good fire at the end of it, you know, things like that, yeah. you know.
5: That's something I was going to ask you, actually. To what extent do these letters offer an insight into a world that doesn't exist anymore?
2: Oh, I think enormously. I mean, this is a completely, completely different Mm. that I grew up in. Mm. A world where you you had perhaps a staff of six or seven servants. You know, I mean, that in itself was a thing. And uh, my mum had a nightmare time with with all that because, you know, there was nothing better than a good one, nothing worse than a bad one. Uh, you just undo all the damage they've done all the time, and, and uh, but in those days, of course, you see, there were no labour-saving things. There were no washing-up machines. There were no dishwashers. There were no well, there were very primitive vacuum cleaners, but they weren't up to much. Mm. Um, and you just, you know, just to get around, you, you, you needed if you were living in a fair-sized house, mm. it just didn't run itself. No. Uh, and also, I mean, there was, in those days, of course, there was a huge. Um, W- well, of of, of labour uh, and people needed jobs. And I, in, in the before the time we are talking about now, I think in nineteen ten or something like that, I remember reading that ninety percent of uh, of um, people in London were in some sort of domestic employment. That's a huge change. Can you imagine? I know it's know. crazy. Yes. Um,
5: the book ends in
2: nineteen fifty-two. Why did you decide to to stop at that? Well, it was a watershed in my life, really, because um, I got married, um, I, joined the foreign, I joined the Foreign Service, I started living in London. I mean, for a long time there were no more letters much, because I would speak to my mother, if anything, on the... On the te- I mean, she was living in France still, but um, we would talk on the telephone, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, uh, there, there weren't at that time anything like so many more, so many letters. When I went to Belgrade and subsequently Beirut, uh, in the foreign service, then the letters sort of started up again, but at that time there were relatively few. Besides which, uh, the book was already too long, and I thought, you know, we've got to stop somewhere. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, uh, yes. This seemed a good moment to stop. Yes. Yeah. Really, yes. You know. Had you looked at the letters much? before? No, no. You had never. I'd never looked at them, but between the day I first received them and between the day we started wow. editing this. That's amazing. Two years ago.
5: Were there any letters
2: that particularly stood out as favourites of yours, looking back at them? Well, there's, one, there's that one marvellous letter when they go and have lunch with the king and queen, um, which is, a, I think, a lovely bit of sustained description and extremely funny and very typical of my mother, who's enormously observant about all those sort of things. Yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about your father, really, in all no. of this. Well, I mean, he, played a, a, he plays a, a bigger part in that book than one realises because he's, he's always there. Mm in the background, you know. And um, he was, I didn't see so much of him, not because he wasn't an admirable, conscientious father, he was, but because he was always terribly busy and working, you know, and, and uh, in, the, in the nature of things, I didn't see so much of him as my mother, who to make an enormous amount of time for me. But um, she absolutely worshipped the ground he walked on. She didn't mind his endless love affairs which there were really a great many. But um, she never minded. I once, more than once, I think, I, I said, her, well, you know, did you really not mind? And she said, no, why, should I, why should I mind? They made him happy, and I always knew they were the flowers, I was the tree. That's so understanding. It's, it's, it's so understanding, and it's also such a beautiful phrase. It is, yes, yeah. They were the flowers, I was the tree. I know. She was the tree, and she knew she was the tree. She was always the tree. And in my father's diaries, when he writes about these other ladies he's having things with, he actually says three or four times, but of course she's not a patron. Diana. Or if I had to choose between her and Diana, I'd be like choosing between the night and the day. So something like that. You yeah, know. yeah. Fantastic. Which, I mean, if, with that?
5: yeah, that's amazing. I mean, if you you know, wanted readers to be left with a message from the book or you wanted readers to take away anything from these letters...
2: um. I think really only uh, that it is a picture of a completely vanished age which we shall never see again. And it's also a picture of a perfectly fascinating woman mm. who who just sort of illuminated. I mean, she was occasionally given to considerable depression. That, that comes in the book, too. She never made any secret of it. But um, most of the time, she really sort of illuminated the life around
3: her because she was just such fun. Mm. That was John Julius Norwich. Darling Monster, the letters of Lady Diana Cooper to her son John Julius Norwich, 1939 to 1952, is out now, published by Chateau and Windus. And now we have a short advertisement break.
5: Tim Harris, author of Rebellion, describes the atmosphere in England leading up to the English Civil War from the perspective of both the kings
3: and their subjects
5: so this book is partly a royal biography it 's partly a biography of the two first Stuart kings, James I, Charles I, trying to understand uh, their reigns from their own perspective, why they chose to tackle their problems that they recognized they face in the way that they did, uh, why they chose. The particular strategies they did and why they chose certain paths to go down. So it's partly about what the kings were up to, but it's also about the people over whom they ruled. What it was like to live in early Stuart England, how people experienced royal government, how they were impacted by it, whether they welcomed the royal initiatives, whether they resented them. The book deals a lot with popular reactions to what was
1: going on at this time period.
5: Rebellion is now available online and in all major
1: bookshops, priced at £30.
6: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com/slash History Extra.
3: Before our next interview, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan.
0: Prime Minister David Cameron has launched a commission tasked with building a lasting memorial to the Holocaust. The Commission, which has cross-party representation from Michael Gove, Ed Balls and Simon Hughes, will work to ensure that the mass killing of Jews is not forgotten. The Commission will hear evidence from people across the country on whether new measures should be taken to remember the Holocaust in Britain. It will present its findings to the Prime Minister by the end of the year. In other news, scientists have revealed what ancient Europeans looked like. Genetic tests carried out on two hunter-gatherer skeletons discovered in a cave in the mountains of northwest Spain in 2006 reveal that a hunter-gatherer who lived 7,000 years ago had the unusual combination of dark skin and hair and blue eyes. Scientists had previously thought that the early inhabitants of Europe were fair. The findings are published in the journal Nature. Meanwhile, almost 100 years on from the outbreak of the First World War, a tale has emerged of how a 67-year-old soldier became Britain's oldest known combatant victim. Henry Webber was far older than the maximum age to serve in the army, but had convinced the authorities to allow him to join up. He died on the Western Front. His story emerged following a series of supplements published by the Sunday Telegraph. Webber's great-grandson responded to an appeal for readers' stories.
3: Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. The idea of the individual is so deeply ingrained within Western thought that it's something that we rarely, if ever, consider. Yet in Larry Sedentop's new book, he argues that only by understanding how the concept has changed over time and its importance to the development of liberalism will people in the West be able to reverse what he sees as a crisis of confidence. Matt Elton caught up with him to find out more. What first
5: prompted
4: you to write this book? I think what seems to me to be a crisis of confidence in the West, uh, a kind of demoralising, which is progressive and has many sources, I'm sure. Um, Economic decline in relation to some other parts of the world. Um reduced, arguably, political uh, power and influence, Uh, but also, I think, it's a crisis of belief. Um, The West is no longer, perhaps, quite sure what it stands for, Mm. and uh, it seems to me that there is a story which can be told and should be told Mm. um, in response to this. If the West is to take the part in the world which uh, it should take it seems to me do you think that it's more important now than ever for people to know about the, the
5: you know the West's history then yes hmm. uh,
4: because what's happened is that the word and the idea which seems to me to be central and distinctive uh, in Western history liberal hmm. um, has had some bad innings (laughs) of late. (laughs) Uh, On the continent of Europe, it has become um, dismissed, more or less, as market economics. French would call it Anglo-American economics, Mm. um, which is a kind of reduction of liberalism, as I understand it. And And in the United States more recently, liberal has ceased to be, has become a kind of pejorative. um, And it's associated with left-wingery, even perhaps with a touch of Marxism. uh, And that seems to me to run against, you know, the central story of American social and political development. What do we talk about, first of all, for listeners who perhaps are a bit unclear Um, When we talk about liberalism, what do we mean in this context? Well, the central value, the central principle and goal of liberalism is, I think, encapsulated in the phrase equal liberty. And equal liberty when applied to society and government has very important uh, implications. It implies that there's a a sphere in which individuals, uh, if at all possible, should be left to govern themselves. Mm. So the first thing to notice about liberalism, in contrast to a lot of the uh, popular usage of the term these days, is that it, it isn't just a, a free-for-all, it isn't a, uh, a matter of not believing anything. Mm. And uh, a liberal society is one in which individuals are encouraged to and relied upon to, you know, to govern themselves according to certain principles. I see. So it doesn't mean the absence
5: of principles, it's a specific set of principles. Yes. Yes, fantastic. Um, And of course we're here to talk about the history of those principles. Um, How how free
4: um, were the societies in ancient Greece and Rome? Some were free and others were not. Yes. Freedom was not, a, as you, if you like, a, a moral principle in ancient Greece and Rome, though late Roman society, perhaps some qualification is needed. But to be free was to be a citizen and to enjoy a superior social status. Mm. And uh, it was not something that applied to all equally. No. I mean, that's fascinating in the
5: book. I, I didn't realise the extent to which being rational was a status only bestowed on some parts of society, some members of society. Um, how did that affect how the society
4: was made up? Well, it was certainly true of uh, Greece and Rome, but I think if you look across the world and broadly, most societies have been organised in such a way that the family is the, uh, as it were, the crucial social institution. And Whether family, whether it's smaller or larger, a clan or a tribe or a caste. And I think what is distinctive about the West, as we, as we know it, is that the fundamental social unit has ceased to be the family mm. and become the individual. Of course, this has implications about what we mean by a family. Yes,
5: yes, that's true. So, I mean, did the notion of the individual exist in
4: any sense, as we know it now, in terms of the rights afforded to the role Well, I think if you 're talking about the rights afforded and, and it 's no accident that liberalism is historically associated with a certain kind of legal system and the notion of basic or fundamental rights, um, I think the answer has to be outside It uh, has to be no. Mm. Okay, no, that's great. Um, so, I mean, what we might, what we might call powers, which it were uh, uh, and and uh, right, uh, claims made, say, by citizens as members of the, that citizen, um, uh, that privileged citizen uh, group or class, uh, would be better understood as privileges. Mm, I say, Rather than what we would call rights. Mm, I understand. So we've got all these
5: hierarchies set up. What factors caused that to be challenged or to be eroded? Well, I
4: think it's very striking the way the growth of empire in the later, in the last centuries B.C., uh, first the uh, empire of Alexand- Alexander and, his, and the successor states, and then the steady encroachment of Rome by the f- first century uh, B.C., uh, were involved a decline of the, you know, the independence, the autonomy of the polis, of the mm-hmm. city-state, and you know major in social and institutional developments like that r- register in minds, and uh, the instead of looking to your own local citizen class as leaders. Um, it became increasingly clear that power was uh, moving elsewhere. Mm. You might make an analogy these days um, in, in Britain with the consequences of membership of the European Union. Oh, okay. Where, where we, we see, and it's not just Britain, all member states see their national parliaments in a sense losing power to the center, ceding power to the centre, but at the same time retaining a kind of authority. But then you get a, a tension and, and a, a certain suspicion that things aren't what they seem to be because, because this supposedly uh, autonomous city is no longer really autonomous. Uh, religious beliefs also began to change. Yes, I was going to say, actually, something you talk about in the book is the spread of Jewish beliefs at this point.
5: What was it about them that became particularly appealing at this point in history,
4: well, of course, there was a Jewish diaspora even in the around the Mediterranean, even before um, the the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century AD. And what I mean, Judaism introduced a kind of monotheism um, with you know this central, all-powerful. Uh, deity Yahweh, mm. um, and uh, that I think had a certain increasing fascination for people who were living in a world in which Rome and its power. <laughs> there was a certain parallel between between that and and the, the uh, and Jewish beliefs, which perhaps made you know created curiosity and opened the way to the spread of their beliefs, and what's fascinating is by the, is that by the first century BC, the, many of the synagogues in, around the Mediterranean had, as it were, non-Jewish adherents, mm. and who were, well, I suppose you could say, floating with monotheism. Going back to the Christians, in, you know, the early Christians, yeah. how did
5: they go about setting up or building a new society based on their ideals? And how did that incorporate the idea of the individual, I suppose? Right.
4: Well, first of all, how did the movement spread? Well, it spread by persuasion. And that is, you know, was for several centuries the most distinctive thing about it. And, of course, in the face of as it as it's grew uh, and in importance and numbers as a movement in the face of persecution. And so, uh, you know, the churches. It, it, there was a two strong, two pronged strategy f- foisted down them in the one uh, in a way. On the one hand, they had to lie low because yes. because they were at risk. And so, um, they, they, there was a tremendous sense of community um, uh, as well. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when there were Periods of purging and and marty- and when many Christians were martyred, uh, the uh, you know there was something conspicuous about. I mean, it was interesting that the Romans often called them enemies of humanity, because they stood out against you know the the fam you know the family the family gods and the civic gods. That's um, quite a label, and they isn't were, it? <laughs> they were so they were accused of impiety. Yeah, impiety. They were, and there were all sorts of rumours circulated because, of, because they were driven into these, uh, uh, you know, to, to these, these s- s- communities which kept a low profile. Uh, there were all sorts of scurrilous rumours about their practices. Uh, how did Christianity act as a force for social reform? Well, it didn't immediately and openly push for social reform. Um, but its habits gradually provided a platform for social reform. Now, what were, the, what were some of the habits? Well, its inclusiveness, first of all. Um, women were welcome, uh, slaves were welcome, and, you know, they, they were given a home. Mm. Uh, and as the beginnings of a uh, of a clerical order developed with presbyters and bishops, uh, and so the beginnings of what we would call the, the clergy, um, my own view is that the, the clergy contributed to what was the beginning of the end for the ancient family, and Familias, because it, it it gave, as it were, it could serve as a kind of court of appeal for, for members of the family who would otherwise have been enclosed within the family. I see. Okay, so there was an external agency they could appeal
5: to? Yes. Yes, I understand. Okay. The whole notion of feudalism is, is interesting. I mean, how, how do you see feudalism as fitting into this story? Is it right. really the opposite of modernity,
4: as right. some would claim? Well, I think I'd like, I'd like to mention one halfway house <laughs> before we get to... Uh, and, and the uh, Middle Ages uh, and that is the, the Carolingian period when, when I think you find b- b- very clearly two visions of social and, and uh, a rightly organized society and government of social and political order coexisting um, on the one hand what is absolutely remarkable and I think is, is clearly a sign of the uh, gradual spreading and internalizing of Christian beliefs Charlemagne and his clerical advisers, one of whom of course was Alcuin from no- the north of England uh, laid a, a, a great emphasis on um, oaths being sworn in order to establish a moral uh, obligation, a moral bond between rulers and ruled I see. And so you get this, something that would, I think, been inconceivable in, in the ancient world, um, where there were so many, where women and, and slaves were, uh, as it were, permanently inferior. You get Charlemagne requiring oaths from his, uh, from his, his, his subjects, asking for oaths for his, uh, from his uh, subjects, uh, almost irrespective of. Status and gender. Okay, so there was equality in that sense. S- so, so there was, you know, in that sense, a kind of gesture you could call it, if nothing more, towards moral equality. Mm. At the same time, he inherited a belief that there had to be, you know, for the government of such a society, a kind of um, more or less permanent say, political class. Um, okay, and, and so you get these things coexisting, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating...
5: That m- is interesting, that it's so far in one direction, but then not quite, yes. in yeah, it's interesting. So then, of course, we do move into feudalism eventually.
4: And here I think the response to the, the response of the church and the higher clergy, who'd been there'd been great emphasis in the Carolingian period on educating and improving uh, the, 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 the clergy. Their response to the collapse of the uh, Carolingian Empire was that they became terrified of not only property but power being dispersed everywhere and perhaps the church itself being brought into what was, what was becoming the feudal system, where local landowners also ruled their, their inhabitants, and the, the fear was that the church would lose its universal identity mm, and okay. its claim upon souls. And so, you know, the language of the, what you call it, the rhetoric of um, the care of souls, which had been important um, in this intervening period, in the uh, 7th, 8th, 9th century, um, well, Led the clergy to to fight hard for you know some continuing s- s- central organization i see. and and in due course what central organization was available to them well in the end it was a papacy right yes, and the papacy became the fulcrum on which um, a new legal system was gradually created from the uh, later 11th century, and this is a system which did, in due course, you know, create the notion of basic or fundamental rights. Mm. I mean, papal reform is
5: a major player in your book. Why do you think its role has been you know, overlooked for
4: so long? Well, I don't think it has been <laughs> overlooked for so long, but I, uh, insofar as people were impressed by the new strength and militancy of the Church. But I think the, the, implica- the, the significance of developments in canon law, that is, the legal system which the uh, popes, uh, starting in the second half of the 11th century and carrying on until certainly the end of the 13th, early 14th century, um, gradually created um, this legal system it, it led to lo- lots of innovation I mean uh, innovation which probably wasn't imagined at the, at the outset and but the unintended consequence of this uh, remarkable development in, within 100 or 200 years was that they took up an ancient idea of natural law which Become important in the later period of Greek philosophy um, and been speculative, an idea that a kind of universality, which again was perhaps related to the spread of the Roman Empire. They took up the idea of natural law, but with Christian moral intuitions, turned it steadily into a theory of natural rights. I see. Of basic or fundamental rights for individuals, for souls. I understand. So how did the
5: emergence of papal law lead to the emergence of nation-states? I think
4: you know, kingship had in, in, well, especially in France, uh, had really declined into, into, into not much more than a feudal uh, naming game. And uh, kings, even in Britain, even in England, and, and and emperors in Germany were more and more caught up in this de-centra- very decentralized feudal system. And they were envious of the popes. I mean, they were jealous of this um, large-scale organization, increasingly well or- or organized, which, in which papal uh, orders and papal courts were, you know, sending down routes across Western Europe um, and drawing business and, and money and influence to Rome. I think they thought, "Why can't I do that? <laughs> why can't I? Why can't I have something like that in my kingdom?" And uh, you know, it, it provided a model. Okay, and the attraction and and you know the. Growth of the idea of, of a sovereign authority, which is intrinsic to our idea of a state, of a nation-state, uh, r- turns on the equal subjection of, for want of a better word, individuals yeah. um, to the, to the sovereign agency, and that equal subjection was, I think, you know, borrowed from. From people from canon law. I see. So, what sort of period are we talking about? That this happened. Well, it was you know it it, it, it it was not momentary. I mean, it was a, a slow process and a very uneven process. Uh, but from the twelfth to the fifteenth century. I see. You talk in the book about Europe's undeclared uh, civil war. What what do you mean by this by this term? Well, I think a number of things, as far as ideas are concerned. Um, I mentioned already that liberalism seems to me to have been disfigured, the idea, by being on the continent associated with just market economics and in the United States increasingly with unbelief, Hmm. with uh, indifference. And there is a philosophical tradition which I think has contributed to this and it is fundamental to economics as, as, a, as a discipline, and that is utilitarianism, um, which has at times you know, led to the suggestion that the state should be, uh, and that government should be neutral uh, as between uh, different beliefs. Well, I don't think neutrality is, is a notion associated with classical liberalism at all. Um, Classical liberalism is a set of beliefs <laughs> which which are meant to protect an area of maximum autonomy for individuals, but also provide rules for uh, intervening in, in individual behavior when uh, they go beyond certain uh, bounds. And uh, in in leading the West to see itself in these terms of. Non belief, of, of a kind of indifference. I think, we, we, you know, we, we're, our ideas no longer correspond to our intuitions always. Okay. And, and I think that, that is dangerous. So,
5: I mean, going forward, what would be the way to help uh, shore up Western um, stability in this sense? What could we do um, to help that in the future?
4: Well, the first uh, thing I think is to help people to have confidence in their own tradition okay. and to, you know, understand you know, the, the nature of, the, of that tradition. <clears throat> and, you know, the, a society where representative government, f- fundamental rights and judicial review, I mean, was created only very slowly and with great difficulty. And uh, I think it's, it's very important to understand how, how difficult they were to create and how fragile they are. I mean, you could say that we, you know, we, we've rushed into things like invading Iraq, for instance, without <laughs> anything like adequate appreciation of the cultures, we're, or Afghanistan, you know, the cultures we're dealing with. Mm. And so I think having a clear sense of one's own culture can actually make it easier to understand differences in culture.
3: That was Larry Sedentop in conversation with Matt Elton. Larry's book, Inventing the Individual, The Origins of Western Liberalism, is out now published by Alan Lane. And you can read more from his interview with Matt in the February issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this issue, we're discussing whether or not Britain was right to fight the First World War, We're discovering the sinful secrets of medieval London. And we're explaining how a royal murder could have sparked a war in the Victorian era. Pick up your copy of our February issue now in all good newsagents and digitally. And just before we go, here's a reminder that BBC History magazine is holding two-day events in Bristol's M-Shed on the weekend of the 15th and 16th of March. We begin with the Vikings' Day on the Saturday and follow that with the First World War Day event on the Sunday. In each case, you'll get the chance to hear talks from a range of expert historians and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more information and tickets for both of these events, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do, as always, get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we might well read out some of your messages in the future. And you can keep in touch with us on social media. We are at History Extra on Twitter or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find news, blogs, features, image galleries, quizzes and more. In next week's episode, we'll be talking about Isambard Kingdom Brunel with his latest biographer, Eugene Byrne. And we'll be getting the backstory on a new BBC series, The Royal Cousins at War. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Bath and Oxford and produced by Jack Fletcher.